Hello, and welcome back to Listen to These Nerds. Uh, tonight we're going to be doing the Mythos Unit Postmortem. I'm John, I'm acting as the primary interviewer tonight, uh, with me. Uh, hi, I'm Chris, and I'm the guy who ran, created, and uh, yeah, has been the creative powerhouse behind Mythos Unit. And it's a little weird being, well, kind of uh, in, you know, not in the driver's seat for something related to Mythos Unit, but uh, yeah, I'll roll with it. Uh, hello, my name is Harry. I played Franklin Blackmore. I'm also probably the reason uh, John had to go back to the recording and like unpeak my audio. So apologies. Hi, I'm Joey. I played uh, Quincy Adams, uh, and uh, I'm interested to talk shop about this stuff. Uh, and I'm Jonathan. I played Adam Lavender. I came in uh, partly through the campaign. I think for like most of the second and the third act. Um, or the fourth and fifth act, however, however that had panned out. Um, but yeah, it was a, a great experience, uh, really fun. So thanks oh, for having thank me. You. Wow, well, delighted you could join us, Jonathan. So, uh, Chris, I guess the, the first thing uh, to talk about is what were your goals going into Season 2 for Mythos Unit? Oof, that is a good question. Honestly... Season two, you know, was meant to be a continuation of the first season and, uh, you know, having uh, having our inspectors continue with uh, the mystery behind the smiley face killer and stuff. Basically, a lot of it was um, season two was about escalating that the situation would be, you know, progressively more and more dangerous and more would be at stake in the city of London. And it would the players would also be given more freedom to tackle the cases. And as a result of that, their actions would progressively determine more and more of the story and uh, basically just really open up the possible, uh, you know, endings and influence what uh the final escalation of everything would be like right so um i guess one major change uh in in season two was uh the system changed so yes basically i am <clears throat> as a dungeon master i am always looking for new ways to tell stories and find game systems that can delve into uh, yeah, opportunities to, you know, tell the stories that I want to tell. And I've always been a fan of stuff with a bit of crunch to it, as well as fluff. So the reason that I started off with Wild Talents was I felt it was freeform enough to allow options, but at the same time, the numbers involved would also help with that. But it was when I, over time, tried out other things that I started delving into mutants and masterminds and i felt as though that would be a little more structured in a sense like um wild talents uh has its own way of telling stories but uh i feel as though i was trying to get somewhat close to something resembling dungeons and dragons in terms of its stats and progression and the ways in which stuff scales and wild Talents has a couple of things, but with the health system and the damage system, it doesn't really cover that type of stuff. And I felt that while and I felt that mutants and masterminds would allow me to approach that. So I switched over to mutants and masterminds because I felt it was closer to the type of system that would match the story and the tone that I wanted to set. All right. Um, 
you also uh, introduced a couple other like auxiliary systems, like uh, like the uh, the team budget and other uh, things. Though those didn't quite go anywhere in the long term. Was that thing you decided to kind of abandon, or was it just uh, kind of a, an issue of time? It was a little bit of an issue of time. I tried to implement it, however. I feel as though I kept having to bring it up to remind the uh, you guys that it was there, in a sense. And as a result of that, it felt as though, even though I was trying to implement it, it, yeah, didn't really seem as though people were latching onto it in the way that I was hoping it would. So I realized that I needed to focus maybe a bit more on the storytelling aspects and less on some of the mechanical stuff. Because, in a sense, another thing about me as a dungeon master is I'm constantly trying to improve my skills. And I feel as though, over this very long time that I've played Mutants, over these years that I've been running Mythos Unit, I have become a lot more experienced as a dungeon master and been exposed to a lot of different things. And in hindsight, there are a lot of things I would have done differently. But one of the main things that I've learned is the sheer importance of storytelling and how... Uh, the mechanics are a vehicle with which to tell the story and not the other way around. If people want video games, uh, they can play video games and stat-related stuff like that, but I feel as though tabletop games should be about storytelling first and foremost, and people do who like mechanics, awesome, that's great, that's also something that's part of it, but yeah, storytelling should never be bogged down by mechanics, so I gradually stepped away from that because it became clear to me that people were more interested in the story as opposed to anything else. All right. Uh, speaking of the story, yes. Uh, let's get into uh, the various plot arcs that we uh, went through on. Yeah. Um, uh, went through in the season. So uh, we started out uh, with the introduction of uh, the the new character Thalestra, who unfortunately yes. uh, did not stick around, and then immediately kind of transitioned into the second blackout. Yes. So basically, uh, whereas the first season was kind of a slow burn leading up to serious cases with uh, the smiley face killer, I wanted to start things off with a bang, so to speak. And uh, basically, I wanted to imprint from the get-go that this was going to be higher stakes, higher danger levels, and stuff like that. And that's why I started us off with this second blackout to imprint this, you know, a sense of danger and urgency upon the party. And one of the elements was the introduction of Thalestra, because Yvette wanted to play a different character. And in hindsight, looking back at it, I should have made mythological creatures um, an option for character creation from the get-go. Like, it, uh, a team composed of both human characters and myth characters, that honestly sounds like a really good core concept, and that should have been implemented from Season 1. So Season 2 was kind of a rectification of that, with the introduction of both not only Thalestra, but Tony. And unfortunately, due to real-life events, Yvette had to leave the group uh, here and there for a couple of reasons, which implemented an interesting writing thing, because suddenly Thalestra was no longer a member of the team, and then she was again, and then she wasn't. So it was very much, a, yeah, a bit of a yo-yo in terms of the plot, and I, you know, as a dungeon master does, I had to think on my feet quite a bit. 
Right. So, um, uh, I guess uh, with the second blackout, that was the first time we had a uh, we really did the the fighting the myths in the streets kind of uh, uh, session. Uh, with the first blackout, was more of a confused panic uh, that led up to the uh, the murder of one of the uh, dryads. The, yes, correct. The second one was much more of a uh, crisis in the streets. Exactly. Um, yes. So was it uh, were, were the multiple blackouts something you had planned from the beginning, or was Absolutely, that? Absolutely. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, basically, the multiple blackouts were set to occur along a timeline every single Friday, because, um, well, the Smiley Face Killer has been somebody who's all about, you know, theatrics and playing along themes and stuff, and Friday has always been a day of ill omen, as in Friday the 13th. So basically, by associating it with that sort of imagery, he always chose to have the blackouts coincide on a Friday. And basically, the rest of the week was meant to be like a time for you guys to investigate things and build uh, up your strength and, you know, make budgetary decisions and, you know, become stronger in preparation for when the blackouts would inevitably occur every single Friday. And, you know, the first one was meant to be, like, you know, a bit eerie, no real danger, but then the discovery of the murder, then each subsequent uh, Friday would be progressively more dangerous than the last. But, yeah, you guys rose to the challenge, and uh, individually you guys were able to jump in and help folks out on each of those um, nights. So, yeah, you did a really good job with that. All right. Um, So after that, uh, we uh, jumped into uh, the the murder that happened during the blackout uh, involving the vampire. That was another element that I put in as sort of um, a thread, so to speak, to lead you guys to um, uh, the noble, that member of the inner circle of the Smiley Face Killer. And basically it led along this story arc that, you know, reflected basically how... ah, How do I describe it? Basically... Each member of the inner circle of the Smiley Face Killer represented a different sort of type of myth that would not uh, would have a lot of difficulty fitting into modern day society. And of the four generalizations, uh, the Gasha Dokoro represented undead myths, and the plague represented myths spawned by pollution and corruption and uh, chemicals and you know stuff that represented the destruction of nature and the natural world. But the noble represented myths who could blend in with human society, but were forced to prey upon them, in a sense, or use humans in a way almost like parasitism. So for, you know, vampires, of course, they are individuals that literally rely on blood to survive. Uh, You know, they basically have to be parasites, in a sense. So they... Um, yeah, that whole plot arc revolved around how um, vampires, you know, if they were to try and take over society, not only would they have to find a way to prey upon humans, but also they would have to find a way of sort of having humans turn on each other. 
And so uh, one of the best ways to do this is to go after a rich, powerful men in society who were members of the upper class and give them the one thing that money couldn't buy. Well, you know, eternal life in a sense. So they offer uh, the noble Francis Montague offered these rich, powerful men um, basically eternal life um, at the cost of their humanity if it meant preying upon the rest of the human masses. And it just so happens that a lot of these guys were rich old white men who kind of, you know, preyed upon people a lot already through use of, uh, you know, money and power and stuff like that. So it was nothing that wasn't already new for them. Uh, and this is around the time when, uh, Yothan, you joined the campaign, right? Uh, yeah, I came in. I'm, I'm not exactly sure at what point in the investigation, um, but I think the first big thing that I was involved with was going to the, the dorm room with the, yes. like, college freshmen who had been vamped or, like, had been turned into thralls. Yes, exactly. And, uh, yeah, that was fun looking at, like, you know, a bunch of sort of Twilight wannabes, like, you know, that sort of... Um, Kind of, uh, I'm trying to think of the name of the store. Uh, hot Topic? Uh, you know, um, Hot Topic, yes. Like, the idea of college-age Hot Topic vampires and stuff. Like, a bunch of kids who want to be vampires without fully considering what the implications of it are. Like, you know, people who like the idea of being vampires and drinking blood, but not considering okay, you're going to have to do this not only for the rest of your life, which may be decades or even centuries, but you are going to have to prey upon your fellow man to do so as much as possible. And also that leads me to a question of my own for Jonathan. So going into this, like, what was your inspiration behind uh, Adam Lavender? Like, what was your motivation in creating a character like him exactly? What led you to creating, you know, this kind of a guy with uh, shape-shifting abilities and, uh, you know, sort of a, you know, um, mysterious background, in a sense, in terms of working with drug enforcement and stuff? Um, Sure. So I guess when I first came in, when you first invited me to the game, you're like, yeah, it's like a, a kind of a cop procedural type game, um, but, you know, uh, mythical creatures are real and you can... Uh, enter into contracts where you use their powers, and uh, you can, as, as long as there's a mythical creature you can think of, I'm going to let you <clears throat> play around with their abilities. So huge, very open-ended. Um, so that that was an interesting challenge, and that basically, like coming in halfway through the campaign, I made a character who was himself an outsider, right? Adam, uh, American guy, had worked in uh, Scotland for a few years and then got transferred to London. So like he didn't know anything about the team or the city. And so that kind of, you know, he was really a, a surrogate for me and I could learn everything I needed to through him. Um, and then I got to thinking like, wow, well, what kind of powers would be useful for a cop? Um, and what, what kind of, you know, uh, like work do I think would be most interesting and most impacted by these abilities? And, and like narcotics officer was one of the first things that came to mind. It's like, oh yeah, if you're a narcotics officer, but you have a magical ability to blend in, to look like anyone, to sound like anyone, uh, to, you know, essentially be a perfect social chameleon, like you're going to be the, the absolute best person at your job. And I thought that was kind of an interesting concept. So that, that's where I started from. 
yeah, like being able to turn into whoever you need to be is like the dream superpower for anybody working, you know, in law enforcement or something similar. Yeah, and then also I don't I've never played mutants and masterminds before, but I I played a lot of other systems and I know that melee combat is often a lot simpler than ranged combat, and so I was mm -hmm. like, oh, well if he's a narc, he probably, you know, doesn't isn't like a carry a lot of weapons kind of guy, so mm -hmm. it, it makes sense for him to be uh, you know, well-suited to self-defense. And that kind of, again, plays into my own interests as a player, keeping things simple for me. Mm -hmm. um, so that's why he punches people. Right, totally. Okay. Yeah, I got to say, the, the first, those first few sessions when I came in really set the tone, because I had absolutely no idea what to expect. Mm. Um, but the, the escalation from like tracking down these college kids in their dorms to uh, raiding uh, this like... <laughs> A midnight masquerade vampire ball uh, was it, it. It was a really nice arc, uh, and it was super fun. Um, so I'm glad that I came in when I did, because uh, I think that that really did a good job of setting the stage for me as a player to know what what I was expecting in terms of like tone and the mechanics of the game. Awesome! I'm glad to hear you enjoyed it that much. Yeah. Um. So, did uh, anyone else have any questions for Chris about this particular arc of the campaign? Uh. Yeah, I, I kind of had a question that I've been sitting on for a while. Um, so, Chris, you were talking about how the mechanics kind of influenced the story, and that was kind of the reason why you changed systems, correct? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Can you elaborate on that? Like, what is, like, maybe this is something as a person that is a bit more in tune to crunch that I'm, like, uh, like I can kind of see some of it, but I kind of like to know, like, what exactly is your take on, like, elaborate on what is the difference between, say, Wild Talents' mechanics on the narrative versus Mutant mm. Masterminds' mechanics on the narrative. Okay, so Wild Talents is, over time, I realized that a lot of its mechanics are good for almost sort of um, short-term, short immediate storytelling, in that its rules are, like, it does have a lot of emphasis on hard failure as opposed to hard success. And once you get a certain amount of dice, then, uh, you know, your odds of success go up. But after a point, it just becomes one success over another. And I felt like that wasn't quite what I was going for. But more than anything else, uh, combat was the biggest influence because if because of how uh, combat works out, if you're able to hit a target before they hit you, uh, a lot of the time you cancel their turn and also like with the health point system as well it's mm, it's very easy to take somebody out or to deal no damage to them whatsoever like it's a bit imbalanced compared to other games that rely on hard hit point totals like uh, dungeons and dragons or mutants and masterminds because um you know if you hit somebody in the head immediately suddenly boom they're uh, they're a goner or you know, uh, basically, yeah, it just wasn't really meshing with the idea of combat that I had. But going into Mutants and Masterminds got me closer to the idea of what sort of combat I envisioned us having, in a sense. Hmm. Okay. And having degrees of success, like, you know, hard DCs, like in Dungeons & Dragons would allow me to control the amount of success as well as, you know, like, if you got a 10 for investigation, you know, that would be much, much different than, a, you know, DC of 20. Like, a 10 is still a success in some cases, but a 20 would give you progressively more information. But, 
you know, having just, you know, the failure success switch on uh, Wild Talents was a little more restrictive in that regard. Hmm. Okay. Uh, yeah, that's pretty much mine if somebody else wants to take a turn with the mic. I don't, I don't have anything in particular that I, like, was questioning, I guess. But it, I guess my... Um, I mean, if, if you want, we can move on to yeah, the, the uh, next arc and, and see if something else pops up for yeah, you. Yeah, I, I definitely have some questions for later, I'd say. Sure, that works. All right. Okay, so uh, after we uh, dealt with the vampire arc, uh, we we learned about the the... Uh, what was he called? The the guy who could mind control. The Master. Uh, yes. Also known as Imperious Rex. Yes. Um, uh, yeah. So, uh, so after, so we learned that he existed from the, the raid on the, the vampire's, uh, party. Um, uh, then, uh, we had a, another board meeting, which, uh, led, which led into, uh, more, uh, uh, budget using and uh, brought up the idea of bringing in myths uh, that we had captured or worked with in the past as uh, like full members of the mythos unit. Yeah. So basically, that was a way to um, that did play into what would happen subsequently because as time went on, you guys might have noticed that like during the blackouts, for example, or during other events, like you know, a lot was going on in London. Like, there was too much there for just you as the players to sort of handle. Having more people on the team would have given you more ability to control stuff. Like, um, for example, getting more people onto the Mythos unit, they would have been able to do investigations of their own or, you know, uncover different types of clues that would have led to more options coming up, like discovering the exact locations of other lieutenants, like maybe you guys could have found the McCarthy base a little earlier, or maybe you could have found the exact location of the plague, for example. And that was actually a thread that I did introduce as well. You might remember that um, Francis Montague was intimidating uh, Genevieve Helms, uh, director of public works. Uh, to basically shut down development into a sewer project that would revolutionize the sewers and massively reduce pollution in London and stuff. Mm -hmm. Well, the reason why Montague was doing that was because it was threatening another uh, member of the Inner Circle, specifically the Plague, who was living in the sewers of London. And any development with public works, they would have discovered the Plague's hiding place, and, you know, they couldn't have that, so... Basically, Francis was doing all of that to ensure that um, the plague could continue with its work just completely unobserved. And if you guys had progressed down that narrative thread or taken the time to interview Montague, then he may have revealed that and you would have been able to, you know, find the plague as well and reduce the number of monsters that it sent into London as well. So, you know, that would have progressively altered the blackout, as well as the effects of monsters rampaging through London, and also the final battle. Like, with the min with the monsters that you and the lieutenants that you guys took on, like, getting the Gashadokuro early, if you guys had left that uh, one still, you know, watching over Elliot Foster, 
then members of the undead would have been involved in the attacks on London, such as ghouls, for example, and, you know, other similar sort of creatures of a, necro you know, a necrotic sort of persuasion that would have made the attacks on London a lot more severe. But by finding the lieutenants and taking them on, you guys were able to vastly reduce the impact of the attacks during the blackouts. Like, things were bad during the second and especially the third blackout, but they could have been a lot worse. Hmm. Um, so, speaking of uh, plot threads that we did pick up, yes. Uh, so, after uh, capturing Montague, we uh, you really introduced a... Um, uh you you basically kind of brought the the mystery of the man in black to a close yeah so the man in black was a character that i created with the idea of if people could make packs with myths and stuff wouldn't there be at least one person out there who would try to become a modern day superhero and that was the idea of the man in black a vigilante who was on the opposite side of the law in that he was doing stuff technically illegally, but he was still a good person who was trying to help you guys. Creating a what I felt was a very interesting moral twist when you guys finally met the man in black, aka Connor Carson, and had the decision of what to do with him because he was technically on your side. He was trying to help you guys out, but his way of going about it maybe wasn't the best. And the dude was a university student who, you know, did have reasons to do what he was doing, but he was realizing as he went along that, you know, maybe he could have done things a different way, but he was in too deep to change his tactics because at that point he was considered a vigilante and, you know, he w it was a matter of arrest on site for him. I, I did like the part where we were trying to figure out what to do with him after we actually caught him. Yeah. Like, and Quincy's... Uh tenuous uh off the books uh relationship with him was i thought pretty good in terms I of like really allowing him to stay him. relevant to the specific stuff we were doing i really liked that like m moments of moral ambiguity with no clear-cut answer i really enjoy having those in tabletop games because it really lets people flex their sort of you know emotional muscles in a sense and really consider you know, what are the repercussions of this? And it makes them feel as though their choices are having an impact. You know, it's not a situation of, oh, the dragon's evil, kill the dragon, save the princess, save the kingdom. No, like, this is something that actually makes the players buckle down and think. I mean, and honestly, it wasn't really a moral dilemma for Quincy, mm -hmm. because I was trying to establish kind of from the beginning that Quincy was very yeah. anti-authority. Yeah. So Quincy for, for Quincy, I think the, the dilemma with, uh, the man in black, especially when we brought him in, was not so much like, is he evil? Yeah. Is he good? It was more like, I liked the, the fact that we had to kind of work out, like, okay, how do we keep this kid from being, like, eaten up by the system? Exactly. Because he's, he's clearly not, he's clearly useful, and he's clearly doing something correct, right? But, and, yes, the theft of the motorcycle in season one was a way to put him directly on the opposing side of Buttermaker, who is an asshole, but also your boss. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so as a result of that, you know, uh, that led to the dilemma of, okay, clearly this guy is a good guy and he is trying to do the right thing. But as you said, Joey, how do we make sure that he isn't ripped apart by the system? Yep. And yeah. 
And that led to another plot thread that, in hindsight, I should have introduced a bit earlier with more clues and stuff. The idea of, well, uh, the idea of the true pact ritual and the concept of the Arthurian legend, which came about as I was going through the game in Season 1 and coming up with more ideas about where the campaign could go. Because I realized that if we're going to have a game set in London and we're dealing with mythological creatures and old, you know, you know, ancient history and stuff, it would be a waste not to touch on the idea of Arthurian legend and stuff and the idea of Camelot and the Knights of the Round Table and stuff. So basically, I alluded to some ideas with the myth community that you guys discovered and the idea of... Viv, the giantess, being actually Vivian, also known as the Lady of the Lake from Arthurian legend, the person who gave King Arthur and everybody their swords. Like, something that the myth doesn't touch on is, where does the Lady of the Lake get those swords from? And it turns out, you know, Vivi, Viv is a giantess. She forged them herself. She's got a pile of swords! Exactly. There's so many goddamn swords! Please, <laughs> yep. If you... <clears throat> Sorry, I'm trying to do the voice. Give me one sec. So, ah. If you take this off my hands, you'd be doing me a great favor. They're just kind of sitting around, honestly. Come on down to Vivian's Excaliburama. We got Excaliburs for days. Yeah, like, um, I will say this. Um, it's a headcanon of mine that something that the myths didn't touch upon. Uh, King Arthur was actually surprisingly similar in personality to Jack Houston. Uh, the re like, all of those swords were essentially the sh the same, what made Excalibur the Excalibur is uh, King Arthur picked the shiny one out of the pile. <laughs> but yeah, that led to the idea that Connor was trying to become basically one of the Knights of the Round Table and do this thing to, you know, bring back some semblance of what was essentially like uh, the Arthurian equivalent of, you know, superheroes. Um and that basically that was the reason why he was kind of operating outside the law because you know if the cops got their hands on the swords and tried to use the ritual like you know uh, more of like the real world example of cops as opposed to you guys that would lead to nothing but bad stuff and he was aware of this so he that was the reason why he was trying to be cagey about a lot of things because you know if the government got their hands on the true pact and you know made a team of knights as they saw would be good to represent London. It may not be good for the greater good, if you know what I mean. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, no, that actually made a lot of sense. Um... But yeah, in hindsight, maybe I could have implemented more clues about that stuff that didn't go on in uh, the short segment when you guys were going to the myth community and stuff. So that, in hindsight, maybe I could have dropped more clues about that. Yeah, it did feel a little weird to find a, a, a myth community like that wasn't Myth Town, just like hmm. randomly in the middle of the the woods, and then we just kind of never went back there until the the ritual. Hmm. I don't well, think it was weird that they were there. I personally, it made sense to me. But yeah, I'm with John in that. I think we should have seen more of them. Hmm. Um. Yeah. Basically, the idea of that being there would have been a lot of myths that chose not to associate with humans. Period, and would not want to you know, uh, be beholden to this essentially invasive species that had, you know, uh, colonized the entire planet in the time that these myths had been gone. And 
outnumbered all of these myths nearly like two to one. I mean, uh, there there are some arguments about invasive species when we learn that the true origin of myth is from it comes from human consciousness and human belief. Exactly, exactly. Um, so it's a, it's a this the whole thing is that the relationship between myths and humans is meant to be an interesting, if maybe a little div- bit of a divisive subject. And, you know, it does come with debate on how, you know, myths feel about it and stuff. And basically, yeah, um, basically, with any kind of campaign, you know, there are meant to be themes in mind. And I think for anybody listening, it is very clear that this game was about inclusiveness and cooperation between groups of people that may not inherently uh, understand each other. But over time, realizing their differences and their similarities, cooperation is indeed not only possible, but vital to surviving in a world, uh, you know, where people are up to no good and have designs and plans that inevitably cause the suffering of other people. So, yeah, that was the theme of Mythos Unique. I think John mentioned the the myth world concept. Yeah. Um, I did. I do actually wonder, kind of like, what the genesis of that was. Like, well, why decide to have there be this separate myth world versus, like, you know, kind of just being like, ah, myths exist and they have been around, well, and no one's that, really sure where they come from. Basically, that was my explanation for the central premise of the campaign, in that. What would happen if mythological creatures uh, who have existed in myth and stuff like that all came back into existence? It's I realized that it wasn't a matter of they all decided to just, uh, you know, like if they lived in a sort of Harry Potter way where they were, you know, sort of like disguising themselves or staying hidden on Earth, they just all decided to come out of hiding. I decided to make it a little deeper than that. Like, a tangible reason as to why they left, which is because humans are dicks, which is fair, but also why they had to come back. And so that led to a little bit of world building that led to... Basically, my idea with world building is that I like to make worlds seem beyond the scope of the campaign. Like, there is more going on than what you know, the players are addressing and stuff, it lends this idea that the world is large and rich and vibrant and, you know, just adds to the story, in my opinion. So I just don't really, I was just wondering because we didn't end up, I thought maybe we'd interact with that a little bit, but it just didn't um, end up. Was it like that time thing? Like, No, it wasn't a matter of it being a time thing. I had no intention of you guys like venturing into the myth world because that wasn't the premise of the campaign. You guys were cops dealing with stuff in London. Like, on the massive world stage that is this universe, you guys were playing an important but relatively small part in things uh, where you were in your corner of the world in the UK. And basically... By introducing that idea, it was more of developing the setting and the concepts behind it, as opposed to future plans for story arcs or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah, I think the the only real issue with it was more the idea that it would be something that was kept secret. Mm. Um, and yeah, that uh, I will admit that Mythos Unit was something that I was working on as it was going along, and. Earlier in the campaign, like for season one, I was still trying to figure out 
why myths came back into existence and where they came from and stuff. And the reason that I decided that, you know, uh, because I didn't really have anything at the time, I decided myths, you know, whatever it is, it's a closely guarded secret and myths don't want to tell humans. And I decided to tie it in with the idea that myths are in part shaped by human perceptions and stuff. And that, you know, if humans knew that there was another world out there and that things were going to come crashing down and a lot more malevolent myths were going to come by, then what sort of further chaos would that kind of invite? So this was something that the myths agreed upon, not as a long-term solution by any means, because, you know, you can't keep a secret this big secret forever, but because the myths, they had no other alternative at the time, and they are just as lost and confused as humans are in that they aren't too sure what to do because if humans figured out like what sort of shit would go on not even the myths no but you know they're kind of uh you know um basically um improvising just as much as humans have been with okay all these myths are suddenly in our backyard how are we going to integrate them into society so yeah like this is a world in which everybody is thrust into this situation and everyone's just kind kind of figuring stuff out as things happen in real life. Mm -hmm. Okay, interesting. Yeah, it, 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 I, I wasn't 100% sure if, like, whether or not the, uh, the myth thing had been something that you had always planned or if it was something that you kind of had thought of, like, uh, later. But it is interesting to kind of understand your thought process around how yeah. you decided to shape that. It was a later thing, yes. Hmm. And this game has taught me a lot about planning in advance and working on more campaign ideas and stuff because there are a lot of DMs who, you know, make things up as they go. And a lot of DMs who like to plan stuff out in advance. And this taught me about both of those and when to do it and what process to use and stuff. So, um, God, it was... Uh, we talked so much, I completely forgot which part of the story we were at. I think we had just was past Montague. Yes. Uh, God, what happened just after, after Just after Tony was introduced. Right, I, yes. I mean, I don't feel like we need to go 100% uh, chronologically, right? Like, the part of this is just interpreting and talking about, like, the part, points that, that, you know, people might want clarification on or that we were really interested in that or that Chris might want to elaborate on. So actually I will, I do want to bring up one thing that it was the moment that probably threw me the most for a loop and uh, made me revise a little bit of my planning. That was when Harry came to a realization in regards to the case that somebody in Mythtown had to have been feeding information to uh the smiley face killer or to, yeah or and, to imperious rex who then fed it to the smiley face killer and yeah they, and like that was actually yeah. something i wanted to i don't know if you're going to be talking about that but this one but yeah that was one thing that i was kind of curious about because it seemed like i had something there but then obviously stuff started happening like with the blackouts and the preparations for them that i couldn't really have time to follow up on it and so it just kind of got lost in the sauce as it oh. were uh, Harry, that's the thing. You didn't need to follow up on it. You set a ball in motion that led to a significant change in effects. This was something that I will admit I didn't really have time to touch upon, but it was the identity 
of the mole in uh, Myth Town. That person was, in fact, Spring Meadow, the Dryad. Oh! But not of not by choice. Right. She was under the thrall of Imperious Rex, and as a result of this, she was being forced to link information to leak information to him. Oh, so is that why she left? She left because you talked to Jack Houston telling him there has to be a mole somewhere in Mythtown. And so Jack began in doing investigations on his own, and this was happening as you guys were doing stuff like uh, it was happening in real time, basically. Jack was asking questions and stuff, and he went to Spring Meadow and told her, hey, so, um, look, I think that somebody here in Mythtown, they might be leaking secrets or something like that. If someone is working against us, and I feel like, you know, look, I can trust you with this sort of information, but we can't tell anyone about this, all right? And Spring Meadow, because she was under the thrall, because she realized that somebody was onto her, or because of the thrall... She was basically, if anybody was really cottoning onto her, she was to basically disappear, go back to uh, Imperious Rex and basically help out the McCarthy family. But she had enough force of will to try and resist it. So without directly opposing orders, she went to the myth community where uh, Sparklehoof was to try and, and get him to lift the curse. But... Uh, the attempt failed because Imperious Rex is a class 4 myth and unicorns are only class 3. So Spring Meadow lashed out, returned to London, and went into complete solitude and hiding. Until I'm assuming Imperious Rex basically was like, okay, you need to come back here now. Um, Yeah, basically part of the Geass was that if anybody tried to forcibly remove it, she removed herself from the situation, go low, and basically hole up with the McCarthy family because her cover's been blown. Hmm. And All right, so, well... Yeah. I'm kind of glad that that ended up going to something because, yeah, that was the thing. Like, I realized it as we were doing that scene because originally I assumed that it was Silas who was the thing because, you know, sinister giant clockwork spider yes. kind of ticks a lot of boxes. Yes. So when you started describing, like, oh, the gas lamps, all of a sudden I'm like, wait a minute, gas lamps? Hold mm. the fuck on. And yeah. that was the reason why I did both the dramatic pause at that point. Because I'm like, wait a minute, I don't know if this is just something that Chris, like, if this was something that Chris had planted and was hoping someone would pick up on, or if it was just something that it's like, oh, this was something he just might not have considered, and thus I wanted to give you time to figure out, like, okay, how could this possibly have happened? Because I knew that if I just immediately launched into it and it wasn't the first option, I would be putting a lot on you really quickly. Um, I will admit, Harry that um, of the two options, it was the latter. That this was something I personally hadn't considered, but in-game, the more I thought of it, I'm like, hey, wait a minute. This could actually be really, really fun. So I implemented it into the story. I decided that Spring Meadow, for her narrative arc, she was meant to be, you know, a sympathetic character for Jack and somebody for him to connect to, but I decided to add another little wrinkle into it and so, yes, and that also leads me to Silas, who was always meant to be sort of, well, a character who is ultimately on your side, but a possible red herring in that if you guys were considering suspects and stuff, you know, you it is one thing to consider, you know what, that guy's always been fishy, and if you guys had pursued him in the wrong sort of way, events may have happened, and maybe... 
uh, you know, it would have led to, you know, entirely different series of events or things like that, but you chose not to pursue him, and so that sort of train went down an entirely different track. Yeah, well, but... that was the one thing, is that, like, I was constantly, like, as a player, I was constantly elaborating, like, okay, Silas is very suspicious, hmm. but he's also suspicious just enough where it's like, this seems like a person who's doing this not because they're trying to hide something, hmm. but because they just have no other way of operation. Yes, exactly. And Silas is somebody who's, uh, he is, uh, one of the character influences for him was from uh, the graphic novel series Fable. Um, if any of you have read it, it's actually kind of similar to this. Although it didn't factor into the creation of this campaign, the premise is that um, characters from uh, stories like uh, fairy tales, um, Snow White and the Seven Dwarves, Pinocchio, like all of those classic tales, they all find themselves on Earth. They meld into society and stay in hiding, and they all decide, okay, if we're gonna live, if we're gonna be stuck here, we're gonna be stuck here together. So if any of us have done anything bad in the past, you're, if you want to live with us, your crimes are absolved. And that happened to one of the characters, the big bad wolf, who had done so much bad stuff that nobody wanted to be associated with him. But at the same time, it's still technically, okay, I guess anybody who's done bad stuff, you're part of society. But, <coughs> sorry, I inhaled a bit wrong. Uh, one sec. <clears throat> yeah, so Big Bad Wolf. Okay, buddy. I mean, technically, we have to extend the olive branch to everybody, including you, but you, mister, are on thin fucking ice. And that was Silas's situation. Somebody who had done a lot of bad stuff and had preyed upon myths and had ventured into the human world at parts to basically uh, kill a couple humans here and there as well. But when all the myths came over here, it's like, Okay, I mean, he wants to turn over a new leaf. Apparently, he's been doing some philosophical thinking. So, you're here, but you're on house arrest, and everybody who lives here is going to hate your guts. Mm. So, yeah, he keeps to himself in the tailor's shop, and he keeps an eye on things. And he was sort of, um, well, given a task by the town council. Uh, to keep an eye on the underground comings and goings of Mythtown and to have information ready and stuff. And if any humans or any myths try to do anything super shady to in the tunnels below Mythtown, uh, you have Silas to deal with. Mm. Okay. Uh, one thing that I also just kind of realized now thinking about it is mm. when we went to that like outsider myth community and they had yeah. mentioned that beast that they wanted help with, I'm assuming that was the hunter, wasn't it? It was, yes. That was another thread that I laid there. Uh, the hunter was a, in the same way that myths, you know, come about with human perceptions and stuff, the hunter was meant to be one of the oldest myths possible, based on the days of, like, you know, cavemen and Neanderthals back when, you know, spears were the newest technology, an upgrade from just a rock and a sharp stick. And fire was also, like, the newest cutting-edge technology. The days when humans, you know, just stayed in their caves at night, when hunter-gatherers basically, was it was a fight for survival every single day, the concept of predation and big things out there in the night and in the jungle stalking, you know, these small, uh, pink, fleshy humans. And that was the idea behind the hunter, just this 
massive saber tooth tiger that literally has, uh, you know, the power to affect the weather and create snowstorms and ice storms around itself. So yeah, if you had dealt with the hunter, then all of the beasts that came out during the blackouts, like the harpies and the hill giant and, um, you know, the hellhounds and so many other things, those would not have been an issue for you guys. Those would not have appeared during the blackouts. Interesting. Yep. I think actually um, that this, the arc that we were actually talking about now is the one where we were going out to the myth community, which we've kind of talked about already kind of at length about their, like, you know, because obviously you wanted these myths that were basically saying, no, to hell with these British rules. We're free myths of the land. You can't take us into that court because you see it's got the border on it and that makes it a naval flag and all Mm. that sort of stuff. Yeah, exactly. Like, these are myths, or a lot of those myths who, you know, knew of the British Empire and the fact that, you know, uh, Britain, some people don't realize this, but Britain's got a long and bloody history and myths were well aware of that. And some myths, you know, were perfectly fine with, you know, uh, living, you know, living with humans. Some of them saw it as an opportunity to try something new. Some of them were, you know, you got to do what you got to do. These myths were, fuck that. We were here first. Uh, all of you humans are basically squatters right now. We are going to live here in our neck of the woods, and we are going to do just fine without interacting with you guys. Uh, again, this whole the, the, this whole uh, we were here first thing doesn't really apply when you are literally creations of human consciousness. So Yeah, um, again, um, this... You know, this, this is something that's up for debate, but, you know, a lot of myths aren't that open-minded exactly, or th- haven't considered it. Well, and, and, and I could see them not being like, we were necessarily we were here first, but we've been here longer than all of you, right? Because, yeah, like, also, people yeah. may not have settled, been in, settled in that territory. Like, the, the way that Chris kind of established that humans created these things through, like, conception, right? Like, sure, you could yeah. match be- specific um myths with specific uh like time periods based on when in popular media they showed up but that might not have necessarily been when they showed up in this world right so it could have been that these myths had settled this area and then humans in their natural expansionist ways expanded into that territory and they were like well we we were first yeah in that in that sense right it's like the equivalent of coming back to your hometown after a long long time and realizing that your uh, quaint little uh, family home and neighborhood has been bulldozed and a mall has been established in its place. It's like, what the fuck? Yeah. So, because I can't recall, so after the myth community, um, basically, we, I think we were ba- more or less just on the prowl finding, trying to find the smiley face killer because at that yeah. point, they had made their presence abundantly clear. Oh, yes, yes, yes. One yes. thing yeah. I... Oh, go ahead, John. Oh. Oh, well, I was about to say, uh, I, I think the next actual arc was the preparation for the third blackout. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, um, yeah, go, no, ahead. go ahead. Oh, okay. Um, one thing that I was kind of curious about, because during the third blackout is when the plot kind of hits high gear and just starts going, like, you know, it starts going really hard in those last, uh, like, between the third and the fourth blackout. Yeah. The, one thing... The... I, go. Oh, um uh, yeah, the one thing that I was kind of curious about was because the smiley face killer really didn't show up until like the closing end of season one and then season two, it kind of, you know, reestablished itself was did you always have this plan for the smiley face killer to be this like this is going to be the end boss 
or was oh, yeah. it more you just kind of figure like you just sort of came about where it's like okay well we're going to need something to conclude the campaign like with and this sort of like this myth i've created kind of fits that bill well and has like some personal stakes with the characters all in some way um first off uh to uh sort of follow up on what you said harry i will agree that the third blackout is where things really started uh, progressing along and the train really started picking up steam with, uh, you know, sort of an end goal in mind. But I will say definitively that the Smiley Face Killer was always intended to be the main villain of this campaign, that uh, they were always a boogeyman and that uh, their goal was to basically return the human age back to the days of yore when myths could basically roam free across, uh, you know, human civilization and just, you know, have humans in their thrall without, you know, the internet or electricity or modern weapons of war and just return mankind to the dark ages so that myths can basically have the world as their playground once again. Because um, the Boogeyman is actually, like, one of the most fundamental examples of a myth that cannot exist in modern society or alongside humans because bogeymen instinctively feed on fear. Like, fear is what they need to survive. Uh, vampires need blood, humans need food and water, bogeymen need fear. And, you know, a food source like that cannot exist in, you know, a functioning society where myths and humans can can get along. Maybe, like, if a boogeyman decided to be a film director or, uh, you know, like, make horror movies or something like that or live in a haunted house at a, you know, but it is tough to work around with that kind of limitation for a boogeyman. And this one, after hearing all the stories from the past about, you know, the days when uh, myths basically had free reign over mankind and stuff, was like, why can't we go back to that? You know, and basically took the easiest option because honestly, um, they did not fucking care about humans, as you might have expect, as you might have guessed after interacting with them. Yeah, I was gonna say it's like has nobody showed this man the first like fifteen minutes of Monsters Inc. Has <laughs> nobody shown this man that movie? Uh well, I mean, you, you could have done that, but then I wouldn't have had a campaign. So ah, um. yes. Uh, since we're talking about the ending, this kind of segues into something that I was wondering about. Hmm. Um, so Chris, you've mentioned that this is an open world game and it's something that you were kind of writing as you went. Um, and there were multiple possible endings. You actually mentioned that at, at several points while we were playing the campaign that our actions had direct consequences on the ending. Mm. Um, I've done a bit of DMing, but I've never done an open-ended, like totally open world campaign. I was wondering, uh, did you have like multiple discrete endings planned out based on certain like binary actions that we could or could not take or or was it like really like you were flying by the seat of your pants um i will say that some actions would have changed things in that if you had decided to um like if you had taken on less lieutenants the situation in london would have gotten a lot worse and maybe like um you know a lot more people would have started fleeing the city for example or you know myths would really uh segregate themselves and um also in fact a tremendous factor in things surprisingly enough was iris the member of the myth town council because something about iris's backstory is that she knows firsthand how uh 
terrible humans are because basically uh, nymphs and related sort of dryads and stuff like that have been heavily prejudiced against in mythology and stuff. And because she has seen the victimization of so many myths from as far back as like the Roman era and stuff, she was deep-seated in her prejudice of humans. And basically, if tensions between humans and myths had gotten worse, like it would have led to the worst case scenario in which basically myths and humans would have refused to get along more or less. And you guys would have been just trying to, you know, maintain order as best you can while all this horrible stuff in London is going on. But Franklin choosing to meet with her and like settle things on, like approach her as an equal and stuff like that was the first step in getting her to realize that maybe some humans are on her side. And so that averted a major factor in that she actually agreed to work with you guys and Thalestra became a character. And, you know, uh, basically Mythtown wasn't nearly as combative as they could have been. And Iris went from a potential villain who may have, you know, gone full, you know, it's either us or it's them sort of stance. So... You guys did an excellent job in in averting a lot of worst case scenarios and stuff. My and, personal assassin is working with them, and they haven't killed anyone. Interesting. Yeah, exactly. Like that's another thing. When Thalestra became an NPC, I decided that she was giving information to um, Iris, and that you know because of your willingness to cooperate with her and work with her that um, that did also factor into Iris's views of the Mythos unit as well. But Thalestra forming the cult entirely outside of my field of prediction, that was all of that. Ah, uh, the but Basement did, Boys. Yeah, but it did result in the Basement Boys. And I did decide that, um, although I couldn't really touch on it, I decided that Yvette's character was a very unique type of myth that was actually like a fledgling version of what is known to be a god kind of they gods are a type of myth as well but they are myths that require in the same way that myths are formed from human perceptions and ideas and stuff gods are a type of myth that um directly based on how many humans like worship them and like believe in them and respect them and stuff they can actually gain increases in power and this was reflected in some of Thalestra's new abilities like her ability to control spiders and turn herself into like a wave of spiders and stuff like that so yeah that did influence uh things with her as well but back to your question and uh, inquiry jonathan um there were other factors as well like basically how bad the situation could have gotten if you guys didn't follow up on leads like with uh the noble francis montague for example or you know, uh, based on what you chose to do with Connor Carson and how you chose to tackle the issue with um, the McCarthy family and stuff. Like, all that's another thing. If you guys hadn't dealt with the McCarthy family, they would have absolutely been a threat comparable to the Smiley Face Killer and his goons. And those two sides going against each other and basically ripping up all of London in the process while the dragon was bearing down on you guys, that would have absolutely been the worst case scenario. But you thankfully chose to avert that, and the only member of the McCarthy gang that you guys had to deal with was Finn McCarthy. Oh yeah, so that's one thing that I was kind of curious about. It's obvious, like you said, you kind of intended for the smiley face killer to be this like 
be all and the the sort of end yes. campaign uh villain. Uh so let's like back up to the assault that he did on Scotland Yard. I realize I probably didn't come anywhere close to beating him in like no, exactly. you know by sheer hit points. Uh but say if I had the foresight to grab the master ball and had managed to like tap him with it or like you know basically capture him to try and figure out where he had hidden the dragon's egg before the dragon shows up and raises London to the ground or exactly that would have changed things differently in that the McCarthy family still would have been a threat and it was at that point that Tem Tam Talar who was influencing the McCarthy family upon realizing that his boss was uh in your guys's hands would have stepped things up and said to Finn McCarthy, okay, here's how it's going to go. Um, basically, bad stuff is going to happen, and uh, we need to make sure that we're going to be on top when all of this blows over. So the McCarthy family would have stepped up their game because of the influences of Ten Tam Talar and also the smiley face killer's minions, like the lieutenants, the remaining ones, the plague, uh, the hunter, they would have stepped up their game as well and would have directly begun assaulting Scotland Yard for the sake of breaking the smiley face killer free, and that would have played into the final battle instead? In addition to you guys, trying to piece some clues together, figure out where the dragon's egg was hidden, and also raises the possibility of having to negotiate with the smiley face killer for the location of the egg, if that meant letting uh, him out of the master ball, and that would have presented an opportunity for him to try and escape as well. But the, the question is, could he have resisted Orb? I will say that... Well, he had Orb, a lot of will power. Below. He yes. had really high for will the, save, right? For the sake of um, the campaign and making sure that the Smiley Face Killer remains a credible threat, he would have been, like... Uh, he would have had the best chance of resisting the effects of the Orb. Because the Orb is powerful, but it's not invincible, despite what you may believe. I mean, yeah... <laughs> He's a shapeshifter, right? So he just shapeshifts into a form that has no eyes. Hmm. Can't make me gaze into the abyss if I can't see shit. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, yeah, no, that's that's a viable strategy. The I mean, yeah, I mean, like one thing is that I know the campaign ended on a high note, but London is not prepared for basically like the religious schism that is going to come between the followers of the Orb, the Basement Boys. And whatever faction that Merlin is going to end up controlling. Because you know that's coming. Um, yeah, honest, yeah. That's another thing. So, Judge White was a character that I did sort of develop by the seat of my pants in the first season. Because you guys needed a judge. And I, uh, yeah, basically the comedy kind of wrote himself with that guy. Um, but I decided to make him a lot smarter and more competent over time. Because... Basically, I wanted there to be more positive examples of senior citizens in the campaign, which also influenced, like, the creation of Vivian, for example, of this, you know, kick-ass old giant warrior and stuff. And um, because of the Arthurian legend and stuff, I decided, you know, why not include Merlin in this and have um, Judge White basically be a former Pact user who as a side effect of making packs so long ago, uh, was able to discover immortality as one of them. Or uh, sort of like remaining a senior, but never dying because of old age, in a way. Mm -hmm. But yes, um, he is somebody who was absolutely on your side because uh, he is intelligent, but 
uh, he has lo lost a lot of his former powers because a lot of the myths he made packs with back in the day did pass away. So he was somebody who was definitely on your side and was influencing you towards your ultimate goal of basically he was on uh, the side of the myth community and Connor and the reforming of the true pact and an order similar to the Knights of Camelot. Hmm. I mean, we're kind of near the end now, now that we're discussing this. So, like, is there any, was there any other stuff that people were, were wondering? I think I've hit most of the things I was interested in talking about. Uh, yep. Yeah, I, I think I've kind of uh, sort of figured out everything that I was curious about. Was, was there anything else that you wanted to kind of, like, talk about that you didn't get a chance to, Chris? Honestly, I feel like a lot of stuff has been addressed. I oh, suppose, hmm. there is a couple sort of like general questions that I wanted to ask now that we've kind of covered the specific minutiae of the campaign. Uh -huh. So one thing that I really wanted to ask was this was a campaign that required you to spin like a lot of plates. Like you, you know, like you said, you change systems, you had to create each individual power for us and mm -hmm. then tweak them on the fly as you realize things were either undertuned or overtuned. Yeah. Um, there was a lot of moving parts uh, from the story campaign that you've been talking about. So if you could go back to the very beginning and like do this over again, what were things that you would change? Like, is there stuff that you wanted that, like, you really wanted to include but realized there was no real way to fit it in? Is there stuff that you, uh, like, the opposite that you had in that you had to kind of excise for time constraints? There, oh, that is a good question. Honestly, I feel like there is quite a bit that I would change. First off being, um, have both myth and human options available to the characters. Uh, second being probably not police officers, but maybe the idea of private investigators or something like that, so that the players would still be, you know, have incentive to investigate things and stuff, but they would be, they would have a lot less, uh, sort of judicial power in a sense compared to police officers. Still a genuine responsibility to maybe a bit of the greater good, but at the same time, without the moral ambiguities that a lot of police officers in the world face today, in a way. Mm -hmm. In addition, I would also, I would say, yeah, change a bit of the approach to some of the mystery elements. Like maybe, uh, yeah, change the way in which I would structure a few adventures, maybe make it a bit more am ambiguous with a few situations. Um with how I planned out the campaign in the second season, I feel as though um, a lot of the approach with some of the lieutenants and stuff like that was very straightforward and similar to a classic campaign and stuff, but I am learning more about how to structure mysteries in campaigns and stuff like that. So in the future, if I were to design, you know, mysteries in games and stuff like that and long-running sort of ideas and things... I would implement them differently. So, Chris. Yes. What was the most disruptive thing I had Tony make? It's gotta be the ore. It's gotta be the ore. No, it's the fucking the, the spray, bulletproof uh, necklaces. The, the bulletproof necklaces. Because, oh, really? Yeah. 
Um, because as he had a bunch of like McCarthy, like shooty gunmen, plan yes. to fight us. Because not only that, but they don't know. Like that's the thing about living in human society. Guns are really, really effective, and people think that they're going to work ninety-nine percent of the time. But when you introduce those charms, suddenly you know they're uh, up a creek without a paddle. That and um the uh anti uh. The Zeronium powder guns, basically, that were uh, used for the McCarthy raid. Like, guns don't work. Myth powers don't work. So basically, all of the goons suddenly became cannon fodder, and I had to rely on the myths. But then suddenly, when it became a situation where you could break their mind control, you know, with one roll, more or less, that also changed the structure. And I found myself a bit pressed to think of ways in which I could still make things challenging. So I decided to make it so that if even if you were able to free the myths, some of them may have, you know, may not want to help you guys. Like some of them may be rampaging monsters, like with the Chimera that just lashes out like a panicked beast, or some of them may be just dirty cowards, like the troll, for example, who just wants to get the fuck out of there. So that did absolutely influence the mission. And it made things a lot easier than it otherwise would have been. So, Honestly, yeah, though, I, I still felt like that was well-paced, even with the Theronium stuff. Cool. Um, If you still felt as though it was well-paced and you enjoyed it, then I'm glad to hear that. Yeah, because we there was, like, three encounters, right? So it's like, if we had had to, like, fully fight three encounters, we probably would have been there until, like, 1130. Yes. Um, or it would have had to be into two-parter instead of one-parter. I have, yeah, as a DM, I've gotten a lot better at pacing as well. But, uh, yeah, basically, I did uh, keep that in mind when structuring the adventure and stuff. And I did uh, try to break it into digestible pieces. Mm -hmm. But, yeah, that does cover just about everything I can think of. Basically, yeah. I wanted to take you guys from starting out as people with, you know, one or two small collections of powers, just ordinary folks, and by the end just have this basically turn you guys into modern mythological superheroes more or less basically fighting to save london in this awesome scenario where uh basically a bunch of forces were converging on london both humans and myths alike okay i, I have one last question chris before we put things to an end yeah were there stats for the dragon if and were you prepared if we were insane to enough to it? be like we want to fight it um Yes, the dragon was at a significantly higher power level to the point where if you were to take it on, it was not a matter of winning. It was a matter of buying time for things to go on in London. Uh, like, the fact is, def uh, defeating it would have been nearly impossible. Uh, like, almost certainly one or two of you may have been killed. Uh, but yes, it was basically, um, with the knowledge that a dragon was a class six creature, basically it would have been about slowing it down for the sake of your allies, finding a way to, um, find whatever is in London, you know, it's egg and ensure that it'll stop attacking. So there wasn't realistically any way to actually fight it. Um, Maybe with the dragon slaying sword that mm -hmm. Tony may have developed, that would have been a shot. That yeah. would have been your best chance. That's that fair. would have maybe leveled the playing field. That's but again, fair. if you were to take on the dragon, 
there is no guarantee that the smiley face killer or Finn McCarthy wouldn't have joined in the fight for the sake of uh, putting you guys between a rock and a hard place and attacking you all simultaneously. Hmm. So if that's the case, if the egg did manage to fall all the way to the ground, um, would that just have meant that, like, okay, now you kind of have to fight it, and at some point something will happen that will stop it? Actually, but yeah, that's another thing. Um, the egg, uh, dragon eggs are inherently unbreakable. That was oh. a that was a gamble on the part of the smiley face killer to distract you guys and divert your attention and get one of you to leave the battlefield so that he had a chance of maybe taking on one of you guys and, like, actually killing you. Mm. <laughs> he was not expecting the murder rage. <laughs> it turns out revenge is a hell of a drug. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And also, um, in the final battle, um, something that went unseen, uh, when you guys basically got Irvine to take the egg and fly it around and stuff, um... He actually was able to distract the dragon for a good long while before choosing to give the dragon the age, the egg, because the dragon caught him, and basically the two of them had a very intense stare down before Irvine, you know, realized what was going on and chose to give the dragon the egg. So it's not like it's not like the dragon caught him and intimidated him. Irvine is just that fucking cool a dude. <laughs> A dragon yeah, I, teleports into the van and just says, egg. And then yeah. Irvine just goes, drive. This More conversation continues <laughs> for about 20 minutes. Yeah. Um, like, basically, the two of them just made eye contact. Irvine nodded and held out the egg. I, I think probably one of my favorite parts of season two was was the, the was what, when Irvine was, was Sand's van. Yeah. <laughs> Depressed Irvine Sand's oh, van. Oh, God. Punished Irvine was the worst. <laughs> oh, it was yeah, just, like, oh, it was so sad. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but then you got you guys got him his van back, and suddenly, like in the space of a split second, he went from one percent to a hundred all over again. Um, if you guys had gotten him upgrades to the van, like uh, he like you know the idea of a magic engine to have him like be able to drive around during the blackouts or you know, uh, reinforced hull or weaponry or things like that, like maybe even giving him a dose of the stuff that allows him to make myth packs, that would have vastly changed his repertoire of abilities and the ways in which he could help you guys out, basically. Man, if I wasn't busy making the Master Ball during that, uh, before the, the third blackout, I would have definitely, like, upgraded the van. Mm. But... I mean, I think we, we, we proved that the Master Ball was the better investment there. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yep, you guys got a guaranteed way of uh, taking down the Smiley Face Killer and ensuring that, yeah, he wouldn't be able to come back. For 100 years. Yep. Or until the dragon smashes it open and then proceeds to, like, brutally torture him. Um, One of those yeah. two things. <laughs> I will say that um, the dragon... Uh, no matter what punishment the humans of London could come up with, I can guarantee you that the dragon has something planned for the smiley face killer that is much, much worse. And that uh, regarding karma and the smiley face killer getting what they deserve, by far uh, the dragon having the egg in their the dragon having the master ball in their possession, by far the worst punishment that uh, the smiley face killer could receive. All right. Uh, does anyone have any other questions before we close out? No, I think I'm all good. Yeah. All right. 
Well, uh, thank you once again, Chris, for uh, running the campaign and uh, coming in and explaining in all of the, the stuff you, you planned out for, for Season 2. Uh, Absolutely. Like, thank you for uh, being such awesome players with everything. Uh, I'm glad that you all had such a fun time with it. And if explaining my process to anybody listening helps them understand, you know, how to build this campaign, and if they liked anything in particular and want to implement it in their own games, then I'm just happy to have been of help. Yeah, well, thank you again for running. Yeah. All right, and with that, uh, we'll say goodnight to all of our listeners out there, and we'll see you in the next campaign. Yep. Good night, everybody. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening. You can find us on Tumblr at listentothesenerds.tumblr.com or on Twitter at LTTNCast. All our music is sourced from Incompetech.com and is licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0. You can email us at listen to these nerds at gmail.com.